Well, as Emily said, this is the season of Advent. Uh, Advent is a period of time before Christmas, four Sundays, and each Sunday we light the Advent uh, candle. And today's candle is the candle of hope. And on Christmas Eve, we will light uh, the red candle, which is the Christ candle. And it's a season of preparation where we think, get our minds and our spirits prepared for the coming of Christ. The word Advent means arrival or coming. And so there's this sense of anticipation. I like how one author describes the season of Advent. She says, the season of Advent means that there's something on the horizon, the likes of which we've never seen before. And what's possible is not to see it, to miss it, to, to turn away as it passes by us and we begin to grasp what it was we just missed, like Moses in the cleft of the rock, watching God's back fade into the distance. So the word of Advent is stay, behold, wonder, sit, linger, tarry, ponder. There's going to be time enough for running. There's going to be time enough for rushing, for worrying, for pushing. But for now, stay. For now, wait. Wait. Because someone is coming. That's the word of Advent. And that someone is the Lord Jesus Christ. Advent is a season of waiting for the arrival of of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. Now, that just brings a question to my mind. Why is he coming? Why is he arriving? And in a word, it's restoration. It is to restore. And yet, the moment I say that, that implies something's broken. And then the moment I say that, that implies that there was a time when it was not. Are you with me? All right. And before you know it, we're caught up in this story. The story of the Bible. The story about how something that wasn't broken became broken and is on its way to restoration. There it is. There it is. That is the grand overarching story of the Bible. It begins with the delight of unbrokenness. The delight of community. It begins with delight and then it takes a free fall to disruption. Disruption. Brokenness. Separateness. Isolation from God. From one another from this world. Oh, but then the story gets better. Restoration. That's it. That's the story of the Bible. Christianity. Christianity is not this. Christianity is not the good news that God wants to be a part of your life. That's not Christianity. Christianity is not the news that God wants to be a part of your story. It's not. Because our story, frankly, really isn't that good. No offense. 
Christianity is God's invitation for you and me to be a part of His life, to be a part of His story, you see. The story of delight that became disruption, that then became restoration. That's it, you see. That's it. And that's what I want us to talk about this morning here as we prepare. I just want us to rehearse the story yet one more time. Um, Someone once said, he who tells the best stories wins, you see. So that we immerse ourselves in the story that God has written. God has written for our life and for our history. It begins with God. It begins with the verses that Kevin read earlier in Genesis chapter 1. God's story begins with God. Now, atheism begins with creation. Carl Sagan's, the universe is all there is, all there was, all there will be. Always begins with creation, but not Christianity. Christianity begins with God. The God who created the heavens and the earth. And as we look at these verses in Genesis chapter 1, my goodness, how we see this this ordering of the chaos by the kingly creator who but speaks. All he does is speak, and the world comes into being. In Genesis chapter 1, there's this series of royal decrees. Let there be. Let there be. And, And so before God spoke, Uh, The earth was without form and void. Before God spoke, there was darkness over the face of the deep. Before God spoke, and he didn't have to speak, by the way. He is not obligated to say a word. But when he speaks, things happen. And when God said, let there be, he doesn't need an architect. He doesn't need a team of engineers. He doesn't need construction managers or, 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 or uh, uh, journeyman laborers. He doesn't need all of that, any of that. He but speaks, and things happen. And there's this ordering that occurs. And each day it's like this. God speaks, and then things happen. And then the creator evaluates, and the day concludes. There's this ordering of the chaos. That's what's going on here. And and God said that it is good. He's pleased with what he's done. And then he comes to the pinnacle of creation. That's human life. That's you and me. That's the man and the woman. And after their creation, God says, not is it good. No, it's very good. It's very good. And why? Well, Genesis 1 tells us. Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, what does it mean? to be made in the image of God. God doesn't say this about any other part of creation, but we are privileged to be created in the image of God. What what does that mean, to be created in God's image? I like what Scott McKnight says. Uh, He's a Bible teacher. 
And he says to be made in the image of God means that we create, we relate, and we rest. That's what's unique about us over all of creation. We are co-creators, co-relators, and co-resters. And and you see this in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, beginning with uh, uh, God made us to create. That's a part of Genesis 1.26. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. We are to, exercise, we are to rule and we are to create and to be fruitful and to multiply so that as icons of the Almighty, ancient Near Eastern kings would place statues of themselves throughout the empire to remind the empire who was king. And we are icons, statues, representatives of the Almighty. The earth is to look at our lives and know that there is an Almighty creator and ruler and king. We're, we're to do that. That's our commissioning. And Genesis 2, chapter 15, gives us yet another dimension of what it means to create, to to rule. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. And when you think of garden, by the way, don't think of grandpa's vegetable garden. It's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a national forest kind of garden, a garden park. This temple garden in which God lives. God is a temple dweller. And he dwells with the man and the woman uh, whose commission is to, look, work and keep the garden. To serve and to guard in the garden. And those two words, by the way, appear later in Israel's history speaking of the priests who were to Work and keep the temple. So there's a priestly function. We mediate the presence of God on earth to all the earth that there is a creator, there is a ruler, there is a, 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 an almighty maker who has life and has given us life and has commissioned us to represent his life on earth. And we're priests. Priest kings on the face of the earth. And and all of this is in the context of love. That's where we get to this word relate. See, we're made in the image of God in that we create and in that we relate. Genesis 2, 23 and 24. The marriage of Adam and Eve. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So so even marriage is to reflect the kind of relationship, the kind of love relationship that God wants with his people. The kind of love relationship that involves active trust, Active leaning, active depending on God, and then it also involves trustworthiness, that we are faithful. There's fidelity between ourselves and our maker. This context of love, create, 
relate. And then when that happens, there's what? There's rest. And that's verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. That is rest. Can you imagine that kind of life? The kind of life to be unashamed. What would that be like? Gentlemen, what would it be like? What would it be like to tell your wives, to tell your mother, to tell your children all there is to tell about yourself and not be ashamed? Sons and daughters, what would it be like to tell your parents everything there is to say about yourself and not be ashamed? Have you done that? Have you told? I still haven't told my dad everything. See? I'm 52. I still haven't told my dad everything. Do you tell your dad everything? Why don't we do that? Because we have plenty to be ashamed about. I have plenty to be ashamed about. What would it be like, though, to not be ashamed? What would it be like to, to, to never having lusted? What would it be like to never, never being covet, uh, coveting anything, to be envious? What would it be like to not burn with hate and bitterness and unforgiveness? What would it be like to never experience rage or anger? What is that like? This is what that was like. Perfect community, perfect harmony, perfect love. The man and the woman, they know who they are. There is shalom, peace between themselves. There's peace with God. There is peace with their environment. They know who they are and why they are and what it is they're supposed to do. My goodness, No wonder Eden, the word means delight. Delight. If there's anything in your soul right now that says, I I would like that, anything, then you have what Solomon says, eternity put in your heart. Wow. Well, that's the world that God created. You may be wondering, what went wrong? Well, why is it so broken? Why the, why, the, why the spiraling down from delight to disruption? Well, we have to keep reading Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 is really a worldview. Genesis chapter 3 is, is the best explanation as to why this world is the way it is. Why is it that this world is the way it is? Why does, why does terrorism disrupt countries? Why is there greed and, and selfishness that disrupts economies? Why is there strife that disrupts families? Why, 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 why do we keep saying, well, it's not my fault, someone else's fault? Why do we play the blame game? Why? Why does racism disrupt a nation? Why? Is the problem fundamentally education? Is that it? Is the problem fundamentally psychological? Is it bad genes? Is that it? Is it social structures? What? Why? Genesis 3 teaches it's none of those things. At the root, it's spiritual. At the root, it's idolatry. Putting something or someone else on God's throne and de-godding God. And that's what's going on. Beginning with Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent. So into this perfect garden comes this intruder 
the snake. And we're not told where did he come from. Or we, we, don't, we don't know those questions here about the origin of evil or Satan. It's a mystery as we read these verses. And we need to respect it as a mystery. But something's not right in this picture here. You can see that. Something's off. This serpent appears. This crafty and wily serpent. And whose first words out of its mouth were to question the very word of the creator God. Did God really say? And, and the discerning reader will detect, well, this is a test. This is a test of love. And this test was arranged in such a way that whatever Adam and Eve did, they would have knowledge of good and evil. So, so their response to God by means of a free moral choice would lead to the knowledge of right and wrong. And so the snake engages with the woman and, and Eve, she quotes uh, in reference to Genesis chapter 2 verses 16 and 17, you know, did God really say? And she responds, but she changes the wording some. Now that may be incidental. I may be being picky. She may have just been paraphrasing, but here's how she responded. She responded, she minimizes her privileges and the judgment we may eat, whereas God originally said you may freely eat. And, and then she, she minimizes, you know, God, she says, uh, you know, you will die. God said, you will surely die. See? See how she's minimizing it? But then she maximizes the prohibition. You, you shall not touch, whereas God had originally said, you shall not eat. You see that? And, and, and then the snake's question becomes an accusation. You, won't, you will not die. You will be like God. That's what he says. Wait a minute. I, are, I thought they already were like God. I thought we just covered that. Create, relate, rest. Huh? Oh, there's Satan. There's Satan. His deception is there. So subtle, isn't it? So subtle. God had said, eat and you will die. The snake says, eat and you will live. And now there's a decision that has to be made, right? Oh, and by the way, where's Adam? Where's Adam? Look at verse 6. The man who was with her. Why isn't he saying anything? Well, sometimes it's important to speak, gentlemen. Larry Crabb is a Christian uh, and a psychologist. He's a powerful book he once wrote called The Silence of Adam. See, this, this passivity that overcame him. And, you know, later in Israel's history, as I said earlier, the priests were to guard the temple and the tabernacle to keep out anything unclean. And as a priest of this garden temple, Adam was to do the same. See, see, they had walked with God. They had walked with God. And from their walking with God in the cool of the day, he should have discerned that something wasn't right. He should have discerned the serpent's words. He should have exercised his God-given commission to subdue creation. He should have taken that serpent by the neck and taken the serpent to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil 
which in the ancient world would have been a place where judicial proceedings would have occurred. And he should have judged that serpent right then and slayed that serpent and taken that unclean thing out of the temple garden as was his God-given right. But that's not what happened, was it? And had he defeated evil right then, right then had he defeated evil, evil, the, the result for he, the result for Eve would have been eternal rest. An irreversible possession of life and the achievement of shalom forever for his family. Starting with this garden temple and spreading throughout the entire earth. But that didn't happen. Adam instead put the word of the creature over the word of the creator. And instead of ruling over the serpent, he became slave to the serpent. And they died. They died. Oh, not instantly, right? Not instantly. But something died in them and between them. And that ought to give us pause to think just what the definition of death truly is. We need to think about what death is. Death is separation. Separation from God. Separation from one another. They start blaming one another. The woman that you gave me, Adam so bravely said, that's what he said when when he finally spoke. He played the blame game. And she blames the snake, and the snake is still at work today doing his deception. And deception is how he separates us from God and from one another. Jesus himself said that deception is Satan's native language. His native language, his first language is lying as he questions God's word, as he denies God's word. Randy, it's not going to happen to you. It's going to happen to everybody else. It happens to all those other preachers, but it's not going to happen to you. You're different. Someone else will get caught. Someone else has been caught, but not you. You're special. You're smart. So go ahead. Go ahead. You've worked too hard for too long. You're entitled It'll be good for you. It's just one time. You ever hear the snake's voice? What triggers temptation in your life? I wonder what it is. Write down the word in your your notes. Halt. Halt. H-A-L-T. That word talks about triggers. Am I hurt? Am I angry? Am I lonely? Am I tired? Halt. What are your triggers? We listen to the the snake's voice. We buy the lie. And then the lie, sin always messes with our mind. It always messes with our thinking. Sin will make you call good bad and bad good. That's exactly what was going on here. Sin can even make death seem sweet. Yeah. Anybody here see the movie Gravity? Do you see that movie? Yeah. Go ahead. Raise your. I won't judge you. It's fine. Okay. Yeah, I saw it. Wow. Did you see it on? Did you see it on IMAX? Huh? Did you? Wow. Did you see it with 3D? Oh, you should. Talk about 
like immersion. My goodness. This movie about, you know, Sandra Bullock and George Clooney, and they portray astronauts fighting to survive after getting caught in space debris, et cetera, et cetera. So a reporter talking about this movie uh, wanted to do a fact check. So this reporter actually interviewed a real live astronaut with this question. If you became untethered and drifted off into space, you know, that seems like a really scary way to die. What would that really be like? All right? That's what the real astronaut was asked. And here's what the real astronaut said. Oh, no. No, when you're slowly running out of oxygen, the same thing happens as when you're in thin air at the top of a mountain. Everything seems funny. And as you're laughing about it, you just slowly nod off. Astronaut said this, said, I experienced this phenomenon in an altitude chamber during my training as an astronaut. And we're all in this altitude chamber, and somebody in the group's They start cracking these really stupid jokes and everybody's just laughing away. And then he says this. He says, a person who dies alone in space dies a cheerful death. And here's the question. Is it possible that our entire culture is in many ways Drifting through nothingness, waiting to die, and yet everything seems funny. That's the snake. That's the snake. Here's the deal you are never going to make sense of the Bible, and it's never going to really have any impact on you or us if we don't come to an agreement about what the Bible says the problem is. If you don't see, and if you don't see what the Bible says is the analysis of the problem, you're never going to come to an acceptance of what the Bible says the solution is. The, our ultimate problem is our disruption, our alienation, our separation from God. Our problem is our attempt to identify ourselves only with reference to ourselves. Our problem is our attempt to de-God God. And what we need is reconciliation back to this God or we have nothing. Nothing. Does that make sense? Delight? Disruption? Oh, come, Lord. Does this get any better? Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. Starting right now. Reconciliation. Kevin read earlier. But now, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The good news is that God takes initiative to restore, to reconcile, to bring broken people and disrupted people back into his realm. And and we see the initiative that God takes. Even in Genesis chapter 3, God takes the initiative. He goes after them. 
They were hiding. He goes after them. He speaks to them. He questions them. And in Genesis 3.21, so gracious, what does he do? In Genesis 3.21, he covers their shame with animal skins. In Genesis 3.15, he gives this mysterious promise in which he spoke of Eve's offspring who would one day crush the serpent's head, right? God says to the serpent, you shall bruise his heel. That's a painful wound. But he shall bruise your head. That's a mortal wound. God takes initiative to enter our broken world in the person of Jesus by his birth, life, teaching, works, death, burial, resurrection in order to redeem us and to rescue us so that together we might worship and serve him in the new heavens and the new earth. I like this verse in 2 Samuel 14, 14. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again But God will not take away life. He devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Isn't that good? And he does it through Jesus. Uh, In September of 1940, um, a Polish army captain by the name of uh, Witold Pilecki did the unthinkable. He snuck into Auschwitz. That's right, into Auschwitz. See, Pilecki knew that something was terribly wrong inside that camp, and he was a committed Christian and a Polish captain and a patriot, and he could not sit idly by and just watch. He wanted to get information about the horrors that was going on in this concentration camp, but he knew they could only do it from the inside. And so, with his superior's blessing, he formulated a plan. They provided a false identity card with a Jewish name, and then Pilecki allowed the Nazis to arrest him in one of their routine raids there in Warsaw. Pilecki was sent to Auschwitz. He was assigned inmate number 4859, Pileski was a husband and a father of two, and he later wrote, I said farewell to everything I had known on this earth, and he became just like any other prisoner, despised, beaten, threatened with death. And from inside the camp, he wrote, the game I was now playing at Auschwitz was dangerous. In fact, I had gone far beyond what people in the real world would consider dangerous. But beginning in 1941... Prisoner number 4859 started working on this dangerous mission and he organized the inmates into resistance units and he boosted morale. He documented war crimes. Pilecki used couriers to smuggle out detailed reports on the atrocities in 1942. He helped organize a secret radio station there in the camp using scrap parts. And the information that he supplied from the inside of the camp provided the allies uh, with key intelligence about Auschwitz, and in the spring of 43, Pilecki joined the camp bakery where he was able to escape, and from there, he finished and filed his report estimating that two million souls had died in Auschwitz, and when the reports reached London, why they thought he was exaggerating, and of course, today, we now know he was not. And here is how his life is recorded. Once Pilecki set his mind to the good, he never wavered. 
he never stopped. He crossed the great human divide that separates knowing the right thing from doing the right thing. I like that phrase. Once he set his mind. Who does that remind you of? Jesus set his mind to Jerusalem for you and for me. Hebrews 2.14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus defeated the devil by going inside, you see. Inside, he became what we are so that we might become what he is. And that's the glory of Christmas. Hallelujah. Delight, disruption, restoration. That's the story. Where are you?